This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is the one-year Bible reading for August 20th, and we are finishing the book of Esther today, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, where we have just read that Haman, the evil, wicked Haman, has been hung on the same contraption that he intended to hang Mordecai on. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Now, once more, Esther came before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop Haman's evil plot against the Jews. Again, the king held out the gold scepter to Esther. So she rose and stood before him and said, If your majesty is pleased with me, and if he thinks it is right, send out a decree reversing Haman's orders to destroy the Jews throughout all the provinces of the king. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the estate of Haman, and he has been hanged on the gallows because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can never be revoked. And of course, we might wonder, well, how, how can they then reverse what Haman has already sent out in the king's name? Well, we will find out. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned. As Mordecai dictated, they wrote a decree to the Jews and to the princes, governors, and local officials of all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including the Jews. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed the message with the king's signet ring. He sent the letters by swift messengers who rode horses especially bred for the king's service. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. A copy of this decree was to be recognized as law in every province and proclaimed to all the people. That way the Jews would be ready on that day to take revenge on their enemies. So, urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on horses bred for the king's service. The same decree was also issued at the fortress of Susa. Then Mordecai put on the royal robe of blue and white and the great crown of gold, and he wore an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every city and province, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared 
what the Jews might do to them. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. So these opposite, really, decrees of the king. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to destroy them, but quite the opposite happened. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's providences, provinces to defend themselves against anyone who might try to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And all the commanders of the provinces, the princes, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. But the Jews went ahead on their appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. They killed 500 people in the fortress of Susa. They also killed Parshindatha, Dalphon, Asapha, Poratha, Adaliah, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, uh, Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not take any plunder. That evening, when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther and said, The Jews have killed 500 people in the fortress of Susa alone, and also Haman's ten sons. They've done that here. What has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now, what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me, and I will do it. And Esther said, If it please your majesty, give the Jews in Susa permission to do again tomorrow what they have done today, and have the bodies of Haman's ten sons hung on the gallows. So the king agreed, and the decree was announced in Susa. They also hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons from the gallows. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed 300 more people, though again they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not take any plunder. Throughout the provinces, this was done on March 7th. Then on the following day, they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews at Susa continued killing their enemies on the second day also, and then rested on the third day, making that their day of feasting and gladness. So to this day, rural Jews living in unwalled villages, celebrate an annual festival and holiday in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the king's provinces, encouraging them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts to each other and to the poor. This would commemorate a time when Jews, the Jews gained relief from their enemies when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So the Jews adopted Mordecai's suggestion and began this annual custom. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the day and month determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire and Haman and his sons were hanged on the gallows. That is why this celebration is called Purim, because it is the ancient word for casting lots. 
So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they had experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and to pass it down to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. These days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire. These days would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote another letter, putting the queen's full authority behind Mordecai's letter to establish the festival of Purim. In addition, letters wishing peace and security were sent to the Jews throughout the 127 provinces of the empire of Xerxes. These letters established the Festival of Purim, an annual celebration of these days at the appointed time, decreed by both Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther. The people decided to observe this festival just as they had decided for themselves and their descendants to establish the times of fasting and mourning. So the commands of Esther confirmed the practices of Purim, and it was all written down in the records. And the Festival of Purim is celebrated to this day by the Jews usually in February or March um, of the Jewish calendar year. And uh, it's celebrated by feasting um, and by remembering the miracle where they read the entire book of Esther and um, boo for Haman and cheer for Mordecai whenever their names are read. And they also do give gifts to the poor. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he worked for the good of his people, and he was a friend at the royal court for all of them. 1 Corinthians 12:27. Now, all of you believers together are Christ's body, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Here is a list of some of the members that God has placed in the body of Christ. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who can get others to work together, those who speak in unknown languages. Is everyone an apostle? Of course not. Is everyone a prophet? No. Are all teachers? Does everyone have the power to do miracles? Does everyone have the gift of healing? Of course not. Does God give all of us the ability to speak in unknown languages? Can everyone interpret unknown languages? No. And in any event, you should desire the most helpful gifts. First, however, let me tell you about something else that is better than any of them. If I could speak in any language in, in heaven or on earth, but didn't love others, I would only be meaningless noise, like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would it be? And if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move without love, I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would be, it would be of no value whatsoever. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. Now we know only a little, and even the gift of prophecy reveals little. But when the end comes, these special gifts will all disappear. It's like this. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child does. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a poor mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me now. There are three things that will endure, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Psalm 37, a Psalm of David. Don't worry about the wicked. Don't envy those who do wrong, for like grass, they will soon fade away. Like springtime flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence as clear as the dawn and the justice of your case of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop your anger. Turn from your rage. Do not envy others. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. In a little while, the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. Those who are gentle and lowly will possess the land. They will live in prosperous security. Proverbs 21, 23, and 24. If you keep your mouth shut, you will stay out of trouble. Mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boundless arrogance. And to end today, we're going to go back to the life you have always wanted in the life of freedom. And we've been talking about being an approval addict and living for the praise of others instead of for the glory of God. So there are some indicators that we may be approval addicts. The first is comparison. Approval addicts find themselves measuring their accomplishments against those of other people. Deception. If we are approval addicts, we are concerned for what others think about us inevitably leads us to shade the truth. And he talks about running late for an appointment and thinking up all kinds of excuses for why he could be late and ultimately decided to just tell the truth and the other person coming to the meeting was also late and made up all kinds of lame excuses, and he saw how, how silly that actually looked. This sort of thing happens so often that psychologists say many of us suffer from a syndrome sometimes called the imposter phenomenon. We know that the truth about ourselves and the image we project are incongruent, and many people go through life with a lurking fear that one day the truth will come out. I'll just admit to you that I'm always, almost always running late. So 
Resentment. Oddly enough, when we crave approval too strongly, we inevitably come to resent the very person whose approval we seek. We don't want our sense of well-being to rest in their hands, so even as we long to receive approval, we also resent our need for it. But he writes, there is an enormously helpful practice for gaining freedom from this addiction. It doesn't generally get as much attention as a spiritual discipline, but it is one and is in fact recommended by Jesus himself. It is what he might call the practice of secrecy. Jesus said, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The command is not quite so easy uh, as we might think. Jesus's point is that is that true spiritual maturity means that we don't need to congratulate ourselves because we've gotten something right. We come to see that it really is better to give than to receive. Giving no longer looks extraordinary to us now. It just looks sane. It seems like the natural thing to do. Here is the practice in a nutshell. Every once in a while, do something good and try to make sure no one finds out about it. Join the club for recovering approval addicts that might be called Righteous Anonymous. We can give up control of what other people think of us. We can give up the whole business of trying to convince them that our motives are pure, that our accomplishments are impressive, or that our life is in better shape than it seems. The technical term for this habit is impression management. If we take notice, we will see that a vast amount of what we say generally includes a great deal of impression management. For instance, if we tell someone about a television program, we may preface our report with a disclaimer. I don't watch much TV, but the other night, why do we do this? How much television we watch has nothing to do with what we're about to say, so why do we throw in that information? This is merely an exercise in impression management. We do it because if we don't, the listener might think we just sit around eating bonbons and watching sitcoms. And of course, it's unbearable that someone might think that about us, so we reel off the disclaimer to make sure the other person is thinking rightly about us, or to put it more accurately, to make sure the other person is thinking about us the way we want to be thought of. Practicing secrecy means we simply describe what we saw on TV without commenting on our viewing habits. The opportunities for practicing secrecy are all around. Pick someone in your life and immerse that person in prayer, and don't tell anyone make a lavish donation to an organization, or send a sacrificial gift to a person in need, and keep it anonymous. Live so deeply with a portion of scripture that it becomes etched in on your mind and heart, and don't tell anyone you have memorized it. Mow your neighbor's lawn. Follow the bumper sticker that says, commit random acts of kindness and senseless beauty. <laughs> I hope you have a random act of kindness kind of a day and can keep it to yourself. <laughs> Love you all. Have a beautiful day.